0: Human culture thrives when discussions about what is true, what is just, and what is beautiful is remembered as an ongoing, never-ending, never-complete conversation. To quote Milton by the known rules of ancient liberty, welcome to Risky Conversations. I am your co-host, Ace Deliri. Join us as we engage in this ancient tradition of discussions around interesting topics with utterly fascinating people. Uh, welcome to today's episode. We're going to be joined by our friend um, Mike Driver. Uh, Mike, please uh, take the floor and give us your introduction
1: and we'll take it from there. Great. Well, uh, thanks very much for, for having me on. Uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure uh, and an honor to be here. Uh, I'll try and give you the reasonably short version of my history because I am fairly old. Uh, so I came out of university back in 92. Uh, I do have an economics degree, don't hold it against me. Uh, and I was messing around with some post grad stuff, looking at game theory, and uh yeah, kind of got a bit disillusioned with that, um, which we'll probably get back to because I think we're we're gonna perhaps kick off around negotiation. But uh came out of there in '92. Um and I started a company. Um we had uh uh, a rented uh, office space, like a serviced office space, so uh, a very small room you could just about fit two desks in. Uh, a brown Hyundai pony. I don't know if you've ever seen a brown Hyundai pony, but I certainly don't recommend them. Uh, <laughs> and they, you could rent that at eight quid a day. Uh, wow. and, and we started with uh, two thousand uh, pounds. We built that company. Uh, from ninety two to two thousand six. Uh and then sold uh thirty-nine percent to private equity in in oh six. Uh and that uh was my first uh liquidity moment or uh, I think the common parlance amongst the Twitter fraternity is fuck you money. Um so that, <laughs> that, that am I allowed to swear by the way of course uh, of course uh okay well yeah I don't think we're going to stop me. Um, so that that was a good day, uh, and I, I stayed in the, in, the, in the private equity world for a little while. I think we might we might get to get to private equity in this conversation as well. I think my my summary of private equity is uh, a line I stole from Nassim. Uh, couldn't find a coconut on Coconut Island. Lovely people though, really nice people. Lovely people, um, but yeah, dumb uh uh so I stayed in private equity for a little while uh, and then when that that was done, we we sold the business on um i I was looking around for something else to do. Um, my kids uh were sort of uh probably like eight and ten, so you know i couldn't I couldn't sort of hang around at home uh, so I needed to find something else to do in my life, and I quite enjoyed the the process of selling the business um you know we had six offers. Uh, when we did sell it, uh, uh, and
0: what
1: kind of uh, was it? so so all, it, it it sort of grew and mutated, but we actually started out selling office equipment. So okay. I, I literally okay. went from a PhD in game theory to knocking on doors, collecting compliment slips. So that's that's okay. a, that's a way to build humility. Um, <laughs> so so we we started. We literally we had nothing when we started. We'd, we'd collect fifty compliment slips every day. We'd call these businesses. We'd sell them something that we didn't have a recognized dealership to resell. We'd mm-hmm. finance it. We didn't even have a relationship with a with a finance company. We literally started right at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the end, we became uh, more of a, a document management, intelligent managed, managed print company. So end-to-end document management, scan archive, retrieval. Um, I don't know, probably had 400 staff. Um, I'm going to do all the numbers in pounds because it's a bit easier at the end, probably sort of 40, 40 million pounds turnover. Um, so, you know, sizable business c- covering the whole of the UK. Um, and uh, it went through, made every single mistake it's possible for a human being to make in the, uh, in the 16, 17 years that I ran it. Oh, give us your top three. Oh, hiring the wrong people. That would be one, two, and three. I, I'm still, I still struggle with that. And apologies to anyone currently working for me for that comment. But uh, I still, I still. The thing is, you know, when when you when you when you're interviewing somebody, when you want to hire somebody in 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 business, it, if you if you know what you're doing, it's normally because you've gone past the point where you really needed them. Right. Uh, if that makes sense. So 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 you're so uh, prone. To believe that that person can solve your problem, uh, mm-hmm. that that you will, you know, and, and and everybody does it, and 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 it's something you have to work very, very hard to stop doing. which is is, is hiring the wrong people and keeping the wrong people for long enough, uh, for too long. Sorry. So that that I'd say that's the that's the biggest problem. I made all the, all the other common mistakes as well, but uh, you know, we grew um, turnover and profit every quarter for 16 years and i worked out a stat the other day that in 27 years of being in business
0: mm-hmm.
1: i've had uh two loss making quarters and and well, well,
0: you know what uh, i don't think twitter's made a profit just yet you know what i mean from what no. i from what i gather so I, it's, it's quite refreshing to speak to somebody who's I mean, if you're going to run a business and if it's not profitable, I don't think you can call it a business until it becomes profitable. Before that, it's just a hobby of yours for lack of a
1: um, better term. Uh, you know, I, it's a bit of a pun, but after survival, profit is the only thing that counts.
0: Right.
1: Uh, right. So, so sort of finish off the, the potted history. So um, I, I enjoyed selling the business, so I decided to go into investment banking or corporate finance. I mean, how hard can that be? Um, so I, I, I bought out my advisors, a couple of the older guys were sort of near retirement and wanted to do a couple of other things. So I, I bought them out. It was a small advisory firm. Um, it didn't cost me a tremendous amount of money. And, um, I decided to refocus. Uh, I thought there was a real gap in the market to provide unconflicted advice, uh, to entrepreneurs. Um, you know, when I, when I was selling my business and you, you go through the process and on the other side of the table, there's your PWCs, your KPMGs, your Deloitte's and so on, uh, EYs. I would look at the, the side of the table, look at these people, and I'd have two questions. Mm. What have you ever done? And can I trust you? And the answer to those questions would normally be not much and probably not. <laughs> I, I, so so I thought that there'd be a, a, a space in the market to provide unconflicted un- advice to entrepreneurs, pretty much sell-side only. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, in some ways, it's, it's an idea gone mad. In the last sort of nine years or so, eight, nine years, I've uh, sold about, so I've negotiated the sale of about £3 billion worth of entrepreneur-owned businesses, maybe just short of that. Right on so, so you're, I assume your your hypothesis proves, has proven to be correct. Are you still in that business yeah, yeah, yeah no convex is uh is still is still flying along we We've sold eight businesses this year, so we we sell businesses sort of value somewhere between normally somewhere between ten and two hundred million, although recently we seem to have graduated and we do have a couple of clients at the moment in the in the billions so uh-huh. uh that's going to be, you know, the next challenge to see if we can make that, that move uh, up the food chain.
0: So what kind of businesses are we talking about? Are we
1: like every kind of business or are you specifically well, I mean, Yeah, we, our, our target is really the capital structure. So it's owner managed businesses. I mean, it's obviously it's, it's, you know, growing profitable owner managed businesses, but it could be at any sector. You know, I, I, to give you some example, you know, I sold a business um, three or four years ago that uh, built um, artificial simulators of uh, drilling platforms. So, you know, you learn to fly in an airplane simulator. Right. So this business built drilling for oil simulators. Um, oh, okay. uh, yeah, it's a fantastic business, but basically, you know, like a, based on a, a, an artificial intelligence asset, you know, built up over many years. Um, but, you know, you would you would never set out to as a as advisor or oh, I think I'll see if I can sell something that, you know, that, that, that it's so unique of, it, of its own self. So really what we aim for is, uh, you know, is the capital structure, the growing part and the profitable part. So well,
0: the parts that make a business a business.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it's the people, really.
0: Of course, of course. So, so I'm, I'm uh, very uh, curious about the, the whole game theory situation. So would you mind explaining to us what your understanding of game theory is, and why it doesn't work,
1: and what did you learn while you were trying to uh, pursue it? Okay, well, obviously not very much. I mean, I I apologize to, you know, current students of game theory here for my... I'm going to be very simplistic, firstly, because I can't really remember very much of it, and secondly, uh, you know, to be fair, game theory has moved on a little bit, and I believe there is a lot lot more dynamism in it now, but obviously... I think it's a good jumping off point to take sort of the sort of uh, original tenants or the basic tenants of game theory and and sort of work out why they don't really work uh, from a, you know, from a negotiation standpoint, you know, what, what are the limits? So, you know, what, what is game theory essentially it's taking into account, you know, the impact of my moves or my decisions uh, on the other side in a negotiation or for the sake of negotiation, we'll, 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 define it like that so you know but let's come back to that in a minute the impact that my moves uh have on the other side uh, then you know the game relies on people acting rationally and that's going to hopefully that's going to be a really important word which we come back to but everybody knows the boundaries and i'm going to do the captain kirk thing when we get to talk about that uh uh knowing the other side is equally cognizant and plays by the rules yeah, and you've mm. seen me tweet out Deception is Darwinian probably 50 million times, so I'll come back to that. Yep. Uh, uh, most importantly, and this is really interesting, and most people jump to the wrong side of this, so it's quite interesting to have a chat about this, is knowing when the game starts or finishes. Okay. Uh, most people say, oh, yeah, you never know where the game finishes, but actually you can't be sure that you knew where the game started either, and mm. I'll, 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 I'll come back to that in a second. And uh, so finally... I guess my, my overarching point here is you really don't want to be using anything that puts you in an intellectual straitjacket. Right. Um, because that precludes the use of your number one weapon, which is instinct. Um, so if we run back through, let me try and think. So so we're talking about the impact that your moves have uh, on the other side. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, you know, that, that's, a, that's a fair starting point. Game theory, you know, let's have a think about how how what, what we do and what we say affects the other side. And what most people that do there is they say, well, what would I do? You know, what would I do in this circumstance if, you know, if, if I was faced with this particular move or this particular uh, negotiation point? And that, that's, that's one thing. But what, what I'm going to talk about um, today, I, I call it the game of life theory. Okay. So we, we, we sort of move on from game theory. So what, where do I move on from, from taking into account the impact of my actions? Where I go is, is something that I call aggressive empathy. Okay. So it's not, not enough really to think about the impact that your, that your uh, moves make. It, you really need to, be, you, you need to be assuming the personality of your opponent. So that's okay. like taking off your personality, like an overcoat and putting their personality on—not—not not just what they they say and do, how they think, but also how they feel—and uh, that really is that is a deep understanding. That that is you know a lot more than walking a mile of their shoes. So that that will be the first the first area of improvement on on game theory, if you like. I guess the second the second point is this rationality point that we talked about before. When I see the word rationality, I just see the word predictability. Mm-hmm. The minute you are rational, you are predictable. You know, Trump is many, many things, but he's a nightmare for people and he's a proven nightmare. Whatever you think about Donald Trump either way, he won uh, an election to be president of the United States, you know, and he won because he was completely unpredictable to people I had no way of computing his lack of predictability.
0: So... Works to his
1: advantage when he when he's negotiating with people like uh, the chairman of uh, North Korea. Yeah, look, I, I don't think he's got I don't think he's too many issues negotiating with the chairman of North you know North Korea. Maybe probably one or two more issues with China. He holds a lot of cards. You know you you know the US is the most powerful country in the world by any measure. Mm. But I think the fact that he can be irrational means that he can be unpredictable. So you definitely don't want to be entering a negotiation where where which which where you are reliant on other the other party being rational. And you certainly don't want to be predictable yourself. In fact, one of the most important things that you can do in a negotiation is control your own predictability. You don't want to. You don't want the other side to be able to predict what you're doing. How would you do that? Oh yeah, ra- you, 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 it's it's really interesting. You, you genuinely do things and argue. You would argue. I've argued for weeks for something that I didn't really want, <laughs> just to throw the other person off. Yeah, basically, uh-huh. you want the other per- person unbalanced. You want to tug on the rug. So if I mm. if I've argued for hours or days or weeks for something that is, isn't really important to me, then I give it up. Did you mm. win? Ah, oh, I see. I see. I think i, I you did. That's right. Yeah. So so you don't want to be rational uh because rationality equals predictability. Mm. Um so what what else Let me think? What's the other thing? Okay. So we don't talk about boundaries. Yeah. So I can tell my favorite story. Um I think this is the most important lesson. I and mean, I've taught to- is the most important lesson I've taught to my kids is most important I lesson i've taught to uh, anybody who ever works for me i think it's the most important lesson you can learn in life and it's about boundaries uh and it it has a star trek reference which makes it's it's from star trek it's the kobayashi maru test uh which you, you you'd be familiar with but i will i will elucidate um so uh, the Kobayashi Maru test is a test given to Starfleet officers that it is impossible to pass. You will fail it, and the whole point of the test is to see how you cope with the failure. You know, the, the, uh, the, at least at least some or all of the spaceships involved in the Kobayashi Maru test will explode, and many humans and aliens will die, and you will fail, and the whole point of the test is uh, to see how you fail and no one has ever passed the test apart from captain kirk so how did captain kirk pass the test he broke into the test center the night before i reprogrammed the computer so it doesn't matter you you find me a computer that can beat me at chess or poker or go or whatever it, yeah it, within your closed system it can beat me at chess or go or poker but when i step outside the boundary and unplug the computer you're screwed so um the uh you know if you if you you know game theory relies on everyone knowing the boundaries you know successful a success in life is basically ignoring boundaries uh yeah just to a greater or lesser degree uh or of that nature
0: yeah no you know that, that makes sense it ties back into our friend joe norman's um uh conversation we had a while back with regards to people who use chess as an analogy to how to uh, proceed through life and yeah. how they try to contain life within a chess board and he keeps telling them that life contains chess, chess cannot contain life, but people do make that mistake, so your, your idea here of, I would imagine you would do very well um, negotiating across uh, somebody like Gary Kasparov who spouts everything and anything that has
1: to do with life in relation to chess and only chess. Well, you know, I mean, I don't know if they, uh, they attribute the quote, don't they, about the pigeon and the chessboard to Putin about <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure if it's actually true. But uh, I'm the, uh, I think, yeah, on Kasparov's chessboard, I'd be the pigeon shitting on his, uh, his rook.
0: <laughs> OK, that's a, that's a great uh, way to think about it, because what this ties into is this idea that Um, yourself, me and Jaffer are are always talking about on on Twitter, which is this idea of antifragility. So what I would like for you to uh, explain is how do you understand antifragility and how do you apply it to business? Because you and I were involved in a a Twitter thread with relation to how not everybody is built to be antifragile, especially when it comes to the business mindset. So if you don't mind, uh, please elaborate uh, for our listeners what your understanding of antifragility is and how it relates to business.
1: Okay, well I, I think it, uh, it, it the way I look at it is is I look at two uh two concepts that I have pseudo redundancy and uh the search for arbitrage. Mm. Uh, so so we kind of probably um explore explore those two um those two areas if you like. So um if you think about if, if you think about um I guess that some of this will re- 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 probably um, relates to ergodicity and, and er- ergodic systems as well. So um, I think what when you think about antifragility, you you really need to be thinking about uh, complex domains, open systems, non-linear systems. Um, these are the kinds of terminologies that that, that people will be f- familiar with, um, yeah. because. Uh, ultimately um you need to be thinking about survival you you can't you can't make any money in business if you don't survive so so serial redundancy is um only only investing uh small amounts of money uh or in an idea or a project or or a particular service or, or product whatever it might be um trial and error testing testing the um the market uh if if it fails, you live to fight another day. You avoid ruin, which is the most important thing. If the product is successful you, or the service is successful, you, you get your investment after it. You know, you push after it, uh, and, and you never you never bet more than you can afford to lose. Um, and you are uh, you are able then to to give yourself the opportunity. Uh, as I call it, to fall over opportunity. So give yourself the chance to fall over opportunity. So you're not trying to predict. And we're going to go off on all kinds of tangents here. So I'll I'll try and I'll try and keep it, it, it within the boundaries. But you're not you're not necessarily even trying to predict what will be successful and what isn't. What you do is you say you try you try any number of things um, via via instinct via experience, um, and hopefully you you have a an emergent um, service, an emergent product, something that that becomes successful, uh, and then and then you can capitalise on that opportunity. So you stay alive long enough to actually fall over opportunity. I think the uh, the the technical term is radical or ontological emergence. Is that you know something comes out of uh, your your trial and error process that could never have been predicted that was completely unpredictable and you know the business world is is you know full of of that kind of opportunity where, where people are capitalized so so serious redundancy so the knowledge we get from tinkering uh from trial and error is superior to the knowledge we get from reasoning um because it interacts with with the working of the world it interacts with the working the world over time um so so for me um business is, uh, is stay alive long enough to fall over opportunity, um, will be, would be my, uh, my summary and then capitalize, and most arbitrage is temporary, um, and then capitalize on the arbitrage when you find it.
0: Fair enough, because if you, that, <clears throat> this kind of feeds back into your original uh, jumping off point, which is that if you're in this mindset, anything and everything to do with game theory with rel- uh, relation to predicti- predictability, kind of falls flat on its face because if it's predictable, then it's not something that should necessarily give itself opportunity for arbitrage because if everybody prices it in, there's no profit to be made. But what you're saying is that the real world doesn't work like that, the real world is unpredictable. And if you happen to take small bets and not uh, hit ruin, eventually one of those bets will find an opportunity that will pay off to cover all your losses and then some. Would that be an accurate
1: summary of, of what you just stated? Absolutely, yeah. There's no, there is no profit in what everybody knows. You know, to right. so the to so the add to the add to the sum of all knowledge, if you like, you have to be comfortable with uncertainty. Mm. Uh, my my view is that entrepreneurial entrepreneurialism is uh, is surviving the dance or a dance with uncertainty, if I could put mm. it like that. Um, whereas, uh, you know, I'm trying to think what the op- opposite to uh, an entrepreneur is. Say, I don't know, conformist. Conformists fear the unknown. Yeah, right. They right. have a pathological desire for certainty and predictability.
0: Yeah, um, that feeds into this because I wanted to ask you. So you're you're a founder of a company, and you uh-huh. are doing great. And then all of a sudden, it's time for you to pass the reins over. And sometimes it's to your child, or sometimes it's to a MBA slash PhD CEO. And then the mindset, I don't know if it really necessarily follows through with what you were trying to to do with regards to embracing uncertainty, whereas the person you may hand that business off to may not necessarily have that same mindset to come into play. Do you see that frequently, or is that me making um, a stab in the dark at it?
1: Well, I think if you're going to hand your business over to someone who doesn't understand uncertainty, you want to be making sure you've sold 100% of it.
0: (laughs) Well, that's, that's definitely true. But I'm saying that we notice this very, very frequently because a lot of the companies that were started off uh, eventually become run by people with degrees in, in, uh, in various fields whereas the entrepreneur who started it was more than likely a dropout, right? So the gap between the pedigree from A to B is almost always the length of A to Z. right? So in that instance, I do notice that what you're stating uh, happens to be... Uh, reflection of what actually Wall Street wants, for example. Like, oh, hey, you know, Steve Jobs was a was, was a dropout, but we want Tim Cook, who has an MBA and who has X, Y, and Z. Nothing wrong with Tim Cook in this particular instance. I'm just pointing that out as a thing that they were talking about, because as soon as the uh, uh, reins of Apple were handed to him, um, everything that was brought up about him was his, uh, you know, pedigree with regards to logistics and supply chain management and all those things, with none of which... Or the original uh, strong feature sets of somebody like Steve Jobs, and right? so it's just trying to create that contrast between what exactly it is you're describing versus what eventually ends up potentially happening.
1: Well, none of those things will help you. Will ever help you grow a business, but they are kind of useful right. in a business. But, but I mean, I, I think I've said, uh, I said on Twitter before, you know, cor- corporatism is particularly perspo- uh, politically postponed bankruptcy, which is probably a little. A little harsh but but what what i what i mean from that in the in, in the broader view is taking apple as an example once you've got that level of market power mm. um you know you can you can argue that for a period of time you need a different set of skills um mm. you certainly need a different i mean i've i've often found in businesses either and i you know i'm not a process guy so you certainly right. you certainly need you certainly need that um but look you know opportunity um you know is it lies in the unknown and right. if i mean i don't know tim cook but I, I i suspect not that that he has that he has the entrepreneurial capability to embrace the unknown to embrace uncertainty um and and so that you know there will there won't be any progress or it's unlikely there'll be any progress unless they get lucky and let, let's not you know, let's not negate or discount the fact that they could get lucky. They could get lucky that there's somebody in their organization
0: mm.
1: who is capable, um, you know, who's going to come up with some new ideas or, or find a new way forward. So there's many, many things that could that, that mean the business can be rejuvenated. But I suspect they are on a very long, slow decline. But in the meantime, they have a walled garden, uh, you know, which they can. uh <laughs> They can, they can maximize by draining every single penny out of those of us locked in the garden.
0: Yeah. No, you know what? This is a conversation between myself and a, a couple of the friends from the, from the firm. What we're talking about is that um, uh, you can be wrong as long as you have money. Right? Just, uh, uh, well, the minute you run out of money, you're no longer able to be wrong. So if, if they have a very nice cushion for how many wrong bets they can place. Um, but what, what's interesting about this is I wanted to take your take on it is the amount of luck that's been discounted because every time you hear um, an entrepreneur and I noticed this very very um, instinctively is that when you when you hear somebody who actually started the company they'll, they'll tell you oh I, I got really lucky because X happened and then y happened I just happened to be in the right place and I managed to you know make a go of it whereas when you hear sort of the corporatist side of things it's almost always like well we planned this we had a 10-year plan and we, we executed on this and we analyze that. And it seems like one group is fully acknowledging the aspect of luck in their life. And the other group is almost, despite the amount of luck they had, are trying to override that by stating that it was their intelligence and their eloquence that kind of overcame the potential obstacles. Do you find that to be the case? Or is this just me reading into the uh, into the quote-unquote snippets of the press is a bit too much?
1: Well, no, no, I, I, I agree 100%. I actually think it's actually a little worse than that. So, um, even worse than that. So what what we as entrepreneurs do is 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 you know we uh, um, we recognize, as you say, that most of what happens to us is is a function of just being around long enough to have fallen over, um, you know, opportunity, which is just another way of saying to be to be lucky. You know, Amazon, Bezos did it with uh, AWS. Um, you know, he there was never any intention to build that service and you know they tripped over it and there it was um but but what's um what's even 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 worse about it is when when we then ex- when we start explaining how we how we made it to normal people we we find it we find ourselves rationalizing like we had a plan all along uh right. so rather than say you know someone say well how, how did you grow that business i said well you know i I just basically managed to survive long enough is is, is that I, in, in t- until I came across something that worked and you mm-hmm. change that into, I had this overarching plan because that's the way, you know, trying to explain to normal people how serial redundancy works is quite a difficult thing to do. You, what you don't have a particular target or plan in mind, no. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, there's some overarching strategic goal, but no particular um you know, uh, tactical plan other than to, to survive. Um, and, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people don't understand that. I, I, it re- I read a book by Rory Sutherland re- recently, and, he, uh, he, he, he's got a fantastic analogy for this, which, which really, really annoyed me because it's been something I've been talking about for a long time. And I can not come up with an analogy even 50th as good as Rory's. So he talks about when, when you, uh, when you climb a mountain, Mm-hmm. So that's that's uh that you've never climbed before, or, or it can never have been climbed before. And and you know, there's loads of uh blind alleys and double backs and box canyons, and you go up a little bit, it's too steep, you go back down, you ways blocked by a river, whatever it is, and you you know, you're all over the place, you zigzag, you go back on yourself, and eventually, after many false starts, you get to the top. Right. And when you get to the top and look down, the way up looks really clear. <laughs> Yes. Yes, yes, so, yes, so, you know, the entrepreneur is the person who does all of that back and forth at the, up the mountain, and the, uh, the, the corporate guy, the consultant is the guy who looks down and says, well, that was the way up.
0: <laughs> well, see, uh, what I like about that is it, it can actually tie back into your, um, uh, your actual, you know, the reason you and I became friends on, on Twitter is that when you have this mindset and you're advising the entrepreneur who's selling the business... Clearly at the negotiations table, you come at it from the perspective of uh, understanding serial redundancy, understanding arbitrage and convexity, and the person you're speaking to is almost exactly the mirror image of you in the opposite direction. It's almost like Matrix with uh, Neil and Agent Smith. So when it comes to negotiations, because everybody wants to learn, um, uh, how do you apply your trade in that regard in the sense that you come into it as an entrepreneur, and the person sitting across from you comes at it from a... I guess, so to speak, business school uh, mindset. And what do you look for uh, in those opportunities? Or how do you negotiate? And is that a skill that actually can be taught or is that something that's naturally built in? What What is your take on all that? Uh, on all that? Because um, as from what I've seen, and I do recall an instance where you and I were discussing the, the, the various differences on, in, in how to negotiate, and there was a, a gentleman who tweeted a particular approach and then you had something that was exactly uh, realistically based on Uh, functions of of the real world and I put those two side by side and said look this looks the same but one is subtle and much more powerful and the other one looks good on paper after it's been done so that's how I really got to you know that's where my interest in you really you know kind of shine because I've always uh, you know I've, I've taken classes in business school for negotiations and all that stuff and every time everything I learned it almost always turned out to be wrong and so I was always curious. I was like, how come? Is it me that I didn't understand it? Or is it just that what's been taught has been taught by people who have never really negotiated? So I wanted to segue that in with your understanding of of, of why game theory doesn't work and, and how your approach to entrepreneurialism is your, uh, I guess, ace in your, in your sleeve. And how do you approach negotiations? And what, what do people do wrong when they set it across the table from you?
1: Okay, well, let's let's do a couple of examples. So, be, bearing in mind, deception is Darwinian. Um, so, so interest. I've got. Uh, let me think about uh, a, a business has sold four or five years ago, and and there's a, a much much. I'll, I'll tell you about the deal and and how we did it. Um, much of this will apply to. You know your question and 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 it also applies a little bit to to knowing when a, a negotiation starts or finishes so we're selling a business uh in the uk which um sells um uh, made to measure blinds online really nice business you put the dimensions of your window in choose your uh, your pattern uh, your material click pay it's printed out effectively in vietnam and delivered back to your door in three days really nice business really um really smart from a techn- technological perspective not too many people really highly profitable great business mm. uh, it's online so it's uh you know e-commerce business so you're hoping to get uh, a decent you know double figure multiple of ebitda on that if you can Um, Unfortunately, the problem in the blinds industry is virtually everything in the blinds industry is owned by a a company, an amazing business uh, called Hunter Douglas. And the story of Hunter Douglas is one of the most incredible stories you'll ever hear. Um, The great grandfather of the current owners was uh, the largest exporter of machine uh, tools in Germany prior to the war. Uh, and uh, the because he was the largest Jewish exporter of machine tools, Hitler banned the export of machine tools from Germany in an attempt to bankrupt his business. So, within a week, he hired every freight train in Germany and moved his business to Holland. Smart man. He gets to Holland, and there's a there's, there's reason why I'm telling you all this. So, he gets to Holland, uh, and sort of 1939 is looking over the border and he's feeling a little bit uncomfortable again. Uh, yeah. And uh, as you can imagine, so what does he do? He buries the factory in the ground, uh, and he he ends up in Canada as a refugee. He goes wow. back. Uh, 1947, he goes back, and he digs up the factory and starts the business again. Wow. So this is the origination of Hunter Douglas. And you know the the old story that if you look around the the table when you're playing poker and you can't work who the sucker is, it's you? Yes. So I'm looking at the Sonnenberg family that own Hunter Douglas thinking, I'm likely to be the sucker the minute I sit at this table. Yeah. right, right, right. right. Uh, and they dominate the blinds industry and they they're very acquisitive. They pretty much buy everything. They own most things. And even if you think they don't own something, they have a pretty heavy, heavy influence in there. There was, there was one or two other potential buyers for the business. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, it was going to be Hunter Douglas if it was going to be anybody. But they pay five to seven times EBITDA. So that mm-hmm. that's you sat there. You've got you've got a company. It is one of my most favorite companies in the world. You know, with with incredibly astute and clever people, and you know, we're we're sat here in the UK, and we want to sell them this online blinds business. So what do we do? So what we do is we we don't go to them. We uh, we 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 write a lovely book about the business. We we call that an information memoranda for the people who like these things. Um, and we 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 print about eight of these books, and we go to eight potential acquirers for the business, none of which are Hunter Douglas. Um, but one of them, we know that they have a very strong relationship with Hunter Douglas, and as soon as they receive the book, Mm. they will tell Hunter Douglas that this particular business is for sale. Sure enough, two weeks later, I get a phone call, and this is genuinely gentleman's name, from a guy called Ard Kuyper, A-A-R-D, Ard Kuyper, and he is not a happy man. He is the Mm. European... Chief executive, European, Hunter Douglas guy. You know why? I won't do the Dutch accent. But why? Why have we not been included in this process? You know. Oh. You know. Do you know who I am? Kind of. Kind of call. Cool, you know. Right. right, right. Uh, I, I say, always, oh, uh, You know, it's uh, it's very nice to speak to you, Mister Kuiper. And uh, you know, I'm I'm I'm. Uh, you know, think think you, you are a fantastic business, one of my favorite businesses in the world. But I have a problem. Hey, what is your problem? I said, well, you're just a bit too good at buying businesses. He says, well, what do you mean? I said, well, I've looked at all the businesses you've bought before and you pay five to seven times. And this is an online uh, retailer, which we think, you know, should be in double figures, should be a lot more than that. Hmm. So he's not very happy with this at all. And he, he hmm. blusters a bit and off he goes. So I, there, then, then you have the slightly nervous wait, and sure enough, Ten days later, I get a phone call from David Sonnenberg in New York. Hey, Mike. Uh, that is my David impersonation. Apologies to David if he ever uh, listens to this podcast. And he he explains that Hunter Douglas have been in business for 90 years. They need to move with the times. Uh, and if we're able to come and meet with him uh, down in Nice in France, Uh, then he assured me that they, you know, they realized they need to pay a little bit more for a business like this. So if you actually sort of take a step back there and and think about what would, you know, your standard consultant or your standard advisor or your non-entrepreneurial person have done, is they would have gone to Hunter Douglas with their lovely book. Hunter Douglas would have looked at the business and said, oh yeah, this is at the top end of our valuation. Maybe they even got eight times for it. Eight times mm-hmm. would have been £40 million, pounds, yeah? All right. right. Uh, uh, three shareholders, one would have got 20, two would have got 10 each. Life would have gone on, everyone would think that's a great deal. Yeah, that's a All solid right. deal. It's not. It's a good deal, you know? Mm-hmm. So what happened when we did the deal, obviously, now the whole perspective has changed. You know, Hunter Douglas have had to kick the back doors in to get in to see it. Mm-hmm. You know, so they walked through the door with an entirely different mindset. Um And long story short, I think that when we finally get to the final payments on that deal, we'll have sold it for somewhere in the region of 30 to 35 times EBITDA. Oh,
0: wow. <laughs> so this was all, was this, Sorry, so to, to, to borrow a phrase, was this your plan all
1: along or was this just you testing to see what the result would look like when it came through? Exactly. If that, if that hadn't worked, if I hadn't got the call 10 days later, I'd have to think of something else, wouldn't I? Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so you threw them off their game, and they wanted to aggressively chase you instead of you chasing them. Well, do you know, it's, it's, it goes back to that point, when did the game start? As right, far as most of the right. concern, the game started in a meeting room, in an airport, in France. But it didn't, mm. did it? No, It no, started, no. It started when they thought they weren't going to be able to buy the business.
0: Hmm. Were they happy with that? Or Was everybody like satisfied? Even though the price is obviously to you
1: know, your know, do you know what it has grown like a train. It is unbelievably profitable. It's the reason why the final payment. One, one of the reasons why the final payment is going to be going to be quite high. But uh, it, they, I, I imagine, I suspect, it's, it's one of the best businesses they've ever bought, and, and the business has performed incredibly. Now, hmm. again, that 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 is post hoc isn't it mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> i i you know, i'm i'm glad it has um but you could never have known that at the time um oh, of course. but yeah no it's it's been a it's been a it's it's a it's a win win everyone won of course so of course. Uh, yeah i mean i i i've concentrateded an, an awful lot in that story and, and i've obviously made myself look as good as possible but uh, <laughs> I would expect nothing less <laughs> <laughs> but that that's so 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 there there's a there's a concrete um uh example of that i'm trying to think of another another one for you so to give you an idea so oh this is this is a good so this get this gets to uh one of the things that i talk about a lot and that's that's instinct you know i think i think the yeah one of the things that the modern world doing is is destroying destroying our uh yeah destroying our, our our human instincts and um you know, you want to get out of that intellectual straitjacket, and you want to get get reliant on your instincts. Good, a good example of that is a business I sold last year, mm. uh, a company called Camper. Okay. And uh, so Camper um, distribute; they sell um, inflatable motorhome or RV, as you would call them over there, awnings. Yeah. Okay. So previously, you put an awning on your motorhome, your RV takes a couple of hours and and it, you know it's all the poles and everything but more importantly it takes two people mm-hmm. and normally the person that you are assembling your uh RV awning with will be your wife right. and i'm led to believe by certain people that the process of uh, uh spending 3 hours e- 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 effectively constructing a tent may lead to lead to some marital discord right right so, right uh, so what Canberra did, uh, did is is is, um, uh, is, is distribute an inflatable awning that one person can put up and it goes up in fifteen minutes and it's more uh, secure and a better experience than a normal awning. So this is this is a you know it's a nice company, but they don't own the IP. They own the IP for this, by the way. So so you know you, anyone could go and do it, but they have they have got a very uh, a very smart uh, route to market distribution model which makes it a, a, an interesting business. Um, and this this business is making, I think, around about 4.8. I think when we took it on, 4.8 million pounds. So, uh, husband and wife team, we had an offer from a business over there in the U.S., uh, Lipit Components, for 35 million. You know, husband and wife, 35 million. You know, wow. yeah. 58 years old, I think Mark was, uh, you know, Happy days, or you would think. But anyway, the second uh, the second bidder uh, was a Swedish company called Dometic, um, and they they liked the business and they wanted to come and meet the team. Yes. So they said, "Can could we meet them in Heathrow?" So we met in a in a hotel by Heathrow Airport, and they brought everybody: the CEO, the CFO, the CMO. The council, the m um, and person, literally they had almost the entire board in the meeting and the meeting went very well. They spent the first hour and a half talking about their business, how it could all work together. And, you know, you could work out they were quite interested in it. So we come out of the meeting and I'm just walking across the, the, the hotel uh, reception area. And I, and I look at the, the M&A person their M&A representative and I think she's going to stand in the queue for the taxis wherever she's going I'm going mm-hmm. so of course I stand behind her queue. I So, oh where are you going she says Hounslow I said oh what a coincidence I'm going there too <laughs> should we share a taxi yes mm-hmm. so we get in the back of the taxi we're chatting and she says look you know as you could probably tell we're really interested in this you know mm-hmm. yeah from the amount of people that are here. you know even I could tell uh, <laughs> and uh, so she says, "Look, you know, uh, we missed out on a deal in the U.S. Um, where do I need to be? You know, on the price? Right? So, you know, what would most people say? You've got offer of 35 million? most people say. 37, 38? 40 around that time. Yeah, yeah 40 probably. Yeah, see, yeah, see if we can get a little bit more here. So. Uh, so I paused for a moment and I said, well, if you come in at 55, you're going to be where everybody else is. If you come in at 58, I can't promise that I'm not going to go around all the other people.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: If you come in at 60, I can, be, I can be 99% certain that the client will accept that offer. Mm-hmm. So two weeks later, I... Um, uh, sat uh, in a rather nice corner balcony suite overlooking Lake Como Hotel mm-hmm. Tremezzo If you ever really really piss off the woman in your life or take them to the hotel Tremezzo uh, <laughs> fantastic and at uh, eight o'clock in the morning I get an email from Dometic with an offer of 60 million now why what possesses me what possesses us to when the off first office 35 to to suggest, you know, the next best off we got is 35 to suggest, to suggest 60. It's very difficult to explain, isn't it? It's mm-hmm. it's the benefit of life experience, isn't it? It's the it's it's instinct. Your your conscious brain only takes in so much information, you know. Uh, you you are, you know, you're processing somewhere in in your in your right hemisphere. Is you are processing a whole different set of cues. You're processing a whole different sets of information, and you can't. It's very difficult to to explain why, but you get a sense, you get a feel for what's going to work. You know, much of it is is years of experience, but it's a lot more to it than that as well. You know, what instinct is? What what is it? A greater appreciation of non formalized information. You know, to try and yeah. try and define it. Um, yeah. So, so if you are, if you are in some sort of intellectual model, you're never going to model 60 million out of that, are you? No, no, you, 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 have quote unquote, priced yourself out of that deal.
0: Yeah.
1: And yet, uh, you know, you end up getting, and, and there's, there's lots of implications of this, of this story, apart from, again, making me look really good, um, <laughs> is where is? How do you value a business? Mm-hmm. Where is value gen- generated? Mm-hmm. So there is a reams of nonsense written about DCF, discounted cash flows. God knows what else. Um, how do you value it, a business? Well, you can't, can you? So if you think of if you think of that that business itself, the mm-hmm. shareholders of that business had spent twelve years. Um, hard work, um, you know, practicing all the good things, the serial redundancies and the search for arbitrage and doing all the good things to build that business. And yet you, there is an argument to say that 25 million of the value out of 60 million value was generated in, in two minutes in a taxi from Heathrow to Hounslow. Of course, of course. That's so, to they have you on the team, right? Yeah, well, yeah, or somebody like me. Um, so, but they, so here's my question for you, though.
0: What do you say to them when they're looking at you saying, you know, even that first deal may be good. You're trying to calm their nerves on their, on their behalf because that information is going to flow to them. Because I see what you're trying to do in this particular instance. Because what you're doing, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, is you're reading, quote unquote, the room, right? So you see the excitement on one side of the equation, which tells you that these people are serious. But at the same time, you kind of have to quell your side to say, listen, I, I know you're getting excited. Just calm down and let me just see what I can thread this needle through. So how do you uh, keep your clients in check so that they don't jump at the first offer that instead of let's say 35 million, if they said 36 and your client just jumps and says, we'll take it. How do you prevent that from happening? What's your strategy on that front?
1: Well, one of the things that they don't tell you about negotiation is that it's probably the most important thing you'll do is manage your own side's expectations.
0: Yes. Yes, yes. I've been involved um, and I've failed every single time because of that very reason
1: well I suspect that's why or I did suspect although I maybe have a slightly different view now I, the first time the uh, the uh, US and China trade negotiation fell over and every, everybody literally everybody thought it was done mm. I suspected that that might have been what, what, what happened there that somebody hadn't managed the expectation because you've got negotiators in the room who then come out and speak to their you know whoever they're superior might be and I suspect mm-hmm. that they, they hadn't managed their expectations of their superiors and that's why the uh the plug got pulled. but certainly managing the expectations of your client managing the expectations of your own side is mm-hmm. is is as important as anything that you do um to to you know to try and make gains against the the opposing side right right right. Yeah. okay
0: yeah no I mean uh I've, I've experienced this twice because uh, what happened was out of uh family friend of ours who, who owned a pizza store, right? And it was, you know, making their lives happy and whatnot. And oh, which store, sorry? A pizza store. Oh, right,
1: okay, yeah. And it's, you know,
0: a small thing, whatever. But the, the point is, at the, at the end of their, uh, you know, near their retirement, they wanted to sell it. And the gentleman across from us was this younger uh, man whose father was basically funding him purchasing various businesses. And so they called me and said, hey, can you help us out with this? And we sat there, and I, before we went into the meeting, I said, listen, all you have to do here is be polite and nod and smile. And if they ask you questions, give them the least amount of information. But, you know, uh, pre- present yourself professionally. But when it comes to the business part of it, let's hear them out. And then we're not going to say anything until we go away. So that was the agreed upon solution. The first number that came out of his mouth, um, my, 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 my people just jumped on it. And I said, well, there you go, right? Like you just lost everything because that, the first offer that he was going to put on the table is not the final offer he's willing to pay for it. But that's what happened. And no matter how much I tried to explain to them that you have to kind of sit down, let the process, you know, take care of itself. This is not, we're not buying French fries at the store here. We're, we're selling a business. And it may take five months. It may take three months. You don't know. But don't put yourself in this constraint of, oh, I must get this deal done within this meeting. This That first meeting could be just get to know the other person, you know, uh, tell them a story or two. Because what you really want, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that the best, Uh, uh, negotiating position in any business is the position that you can walk away from. So if you have to do the deal, you're probably not going to get the deal you want. But if you don't have to do the deal, then you have to, you can just wait out for the one that they, the best one they're willing to offer you. Would that be, would that be on the right path according to your experience or am I out to lunch as well? Well,
1: there's a few things to unpick there. I mean, Mm -hmm. the, the best, the best position to be in a negotiation is to have walked away in the past. Mm. Um is to is to have a history or or for people to know that you are a, a, a capable of walking away. I don't like the ultimatum game in mm. in selling businesses at all. I don't like the, the 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 take it or leave it just does not work. Selling business is too complex. Right. Um so so are sort of going back a little bit into into the start of your your, your story, um uh, in, in terms of, you know, what, what could have been better in, 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 in selling the pizza shop, you know, what, we would, what I would have done is, to, it, you know, the first thing is you have to, you have to coach your client, you know. Mm. So you spend a lot of time with your client first explaining uh, what to do, what not to do, common pitfalls. And, and, you know, the thing I always say is no matter if someone mentions a number or offers you a number, you have to be noncommittal. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, the, the value is beyond your wildest dreams or it's, it's insulting, you know, you have to play a straight bat at it and be completely non committal. Because, you know, getting into the meat of it, um, you know, negotiation is dynamic, you know, it's not linear, it's emergent, models don't work. And what that really means is victory is emergent. And by that mean, I mean, it, it, you know, when, if you do get the result, uh that benefits your client it never looks exactly like you thought it would right Uh, um and that's so so if you don't really know what the outcome is going to be uh it's best to avoid making too many assumptions about what a good or bad offer is or what a good or or bad set of terms are uh in the first instance so
0: would you say that the the number one lesson to learn Uh, At the very least, if you go into it, and if at least you get this part of it right, that you set yourself up for uh, success is to not let time and space be a constraint against you and to let it unfurl itself as you see fit so that you can say, hey, uh, I appreciate your time. I appreciate uh, your gesture. We're going to just take a little bit of time to think about it. At least that way you are removing the pressure from your side of the equation.
1: Would that be at least the, the, the smallest and yet most effective thing you could do right away? When you want to never give anything away unless you want to give it away. Right, right,
0: right. Sometimes you I remember you and I were, were talking, sometimes you just want to give something away just
1: to throw them off the track, right? Exactly. You know, you you, you I'm not saying you never give anything away. I mean, these these sort of uh, you know, negotiation 101s talk about never giving anything away, you know, make sure you get something in exchange and all this nonsense. Sometimes you want to sometimes you want to give something away to see how they react. Mm-hmm. sometimes you want to give something away at the beginning so they 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 get the wrong impression of what kind of a negotiator you are or how strong you are sometimes you give something away that people might think you're inexperienced or you know it's certainly been to our advantage that we are a small uh you know a small corporate finance advisory or a small investment bank you know the big boys think they can push you around um and you know, you 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 want them to think that sometimes. You want them to become complacent. You want them to become uh, certain. You know, certainty is a pretty uncomfortable place to be. Um, so, you know, that you, you you don't necessarily um, want to appear any one particular way. You know, you have to be fully flexible, fully adaptable. It's, it's the Bruce Lee line, isn't it? You, you're like water. Be like water. <laughs>
0: So the question to you is this, that are people naturally born to be good
1: negotiators or is this a skill you can teach? I think you can learn to be better. You can learn to be better. Okay.
0: So when you're teaching your kids, um, because you've watched them grow and you've seen their personalities mold and emerge over time, um, when you watch that, does that reinforce what you just stated or I'm sure you could tell? two of your children are negotiating, you can almost predict who's going to win the deal if it had to come down to nuts and bolts, right? So in, in that regard, how do, you, how do you impart what you've learned through your experience? Because clearly um, uh, your children are going to have a better life off when they start than you did. So the question here is, and the reason why I ask you this is because you and I have had these conversations before, is as a parent who has a child that's not had it as rough as you have, you still want them to have that quote-unquote killer instinct. So how do you teach killer instinct to somebody who's never had the hunt is my question. Actually, that's really, if you go to the, to the bottom of the wild, that's what I'm trying to get at.
1: Okay. That's a, that's a really interesting question. So I'm going to come out a couple of ways. Um, I guess the first thing I'd say is I'm not sure you do want to Mm -hmm. teach killer instinct because, you know, I, I, I am here, you know, a, a certain amount of path dependency, um, to, to get to this point I, I'm not sure I would want anyone else to experience some of those experiences uh, because I do feel that you know whatever whatever the, the the terminology we might use but challenges in childhood are are really what give rise I mean I think I think I call it um, post-traumatic growth syndro- syndrome Um <laughs> So, uh, you know, you do, you, you know, what would you would go all the way back to your anti-fragility question? You know, I think I think some of us become stronger in adversity. Mm-hmm. Um, but in order in order to in order to develop that killer instinct, in order to become, uh, you know, very, very good at negotiation or entrepreneurialism or any of those things, you have to have the adversity. And I think you have to have it when you're very young so um i think you know and there's so many examples of it you know i think you know um migration you know it's incredible when you look at the top 10 um businesses in the us or or you know uh, top 10 startup businesses in the us you know eight of them i think are started by immigrants you know people come into a different and, and 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 all the stresses and strains that brings when you come from a uh, you know, you move into a different country, you know, you walk into that classroom and you're different to everybody else, you know, right. and that, you know, and, and, and everybody experiences that in a different way, but it's not without its challenges in most instances, I imagine. And, and I think somewhere in the, in the mix, that, that, that triggers something. Um, so I think if you, want, if you want your kids to have that about them, and you do see this. You do see this in successful people, where they make their life, kid, their kids' lives difficult, purposefully. Uh, and and it doesn't necessarily mean wealth doesn't necessarily mean uh, that your childhood is going to be uh, a bed of roses. You know, right, in the right. UK, I don't know if, it's, if you have it so much over there in Canada, but in the UK, you know, wealthy people send their kids to boarding school. Right, right, right. Yeah, you know, my 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 theory that uh, entrepreneurialism is, is, is uh, a function of childhood adversity. I was explaining it to a guy once, and he said, no, I have a fantastic relationship with my parents. I'm, you know, we, I still have dinner with them every Sunday. We had the most wonderful relationship growing up. I had an idyllic childhood every time I came back from boarding school. <laughs> uh, the irony
0: so, of that is just oozing.
1: Yeah, so, I, you know, I'm not sure. I, I certainly take in the view that, that I, I, I also think it's dangerous to try and construct, uh, you know, to try and construct this kind of reaction out of your own kids. I think, I think when, when it comes to bringing your own kids up, I've never, I've never attempted to, to teach them, uh, you know, any of these skills particularly, uh, you know, what, what, they, what they absorb, what is implicit, what they see uh and feel around them that that'll be going in somehow and and i cer i can certainly see it they've certainly picked a lot of it up um right. but it, it's implicit not not explicit as one of the most important uh i guess my my the fundamental answer to your question is that it, it is much better to absorb things that are you know whole uh an implicit rather than bits and pieces of models put together, you know, do this and then do that or, or, or to try and, and try and recreate uh, something which was a function of so many, you know, an incredible number of uh, unlikely interactions as to be impossible to be recreated. You can't make it explicit. You can't make what happened to me or most entrepreneurs, you can't make it, you know, into a, into a model uh, that can be followed. So, I think my answer question is you can't, you can't explicitly teach your children or anybody, but you can, uh, there can, or there may be uh, an implicit absorption of what it takes. There may be that.
0: Fair enough. Fair enough. I, I, the thing is, um, I have experience with two things, right, with, when it comes to the business side of things. One is sales, and uh, the, the story I relate to you, it's kind of uh, – Fitting is that I worked at a, at a gym selling memberships just because I, I wanted to experience outside of the business and the owners at the time were like well we, we offer you a salary a base salary of this much per year and then we give you a commission of this percentage and so I said to him I said well take the salary off the table and just increase my commission and he kind of looked at me and he and it was because you know everybody kind of needs a layer of, of certainty so that they feel like they should come to work and, and you know they'll have their bills paid and whatnot and I said to him, I said, that's true. But at the same time, if I did that for you, then you would own me because you would tell me what time I could come in and what time I could leave. But for the freedom of being able to leave and come as I see fit, I'm willing to trade off the fact that I can work for the first three weeks and not see a dime of it. And so he looked at me in a way that was rather like uh, perplexed. And I worked, uh, you know, the first three weeks of that, I worked almost 16 hours a day, seven days a week. I, I remembered that came into that gym, knew me because I was reading all of them, I was talking to all of them, I knew who they were and who their friends were, and recommendations would come in. And And uh, in that industry, the way it works is they have this thing called a walk-in, which is like when somebody just, you know, no advertising, they just walk into the gym. And that's a, a really fresh, hot lead, because you didn't have to pay for that. And the argument was that if you can close 33% of your walk-ins, your business becomes s- sustainable in, in less than two years. Um, so each, each uh, sales rep uh, is, you know, obviously your numbers are calculated for how many beads were given to you versus how many clothes and, and how many walk-ins were given to you. And the industry average was 33%. And I managed, for some weird reason, to bat over 80% on that. I don't know how I did it. I still, to this day, if you ask me how I did that, I don't know. But I knew that because if I didn't make a sale, I wouldn't have any food and I couldn't pay my bills. I would find ways to have a conversation with the person as they walked in to get all the possible reasons they would say no to buying a gym membership in our casual conversation before we even talked about buying the membership. And that instinct uh, was kind of honed in because like I said, for the first three weeks, I couldn't make a, a single payment for any of my bills. But afterwards, I used to go in for two, three hours and I would make enough sales that would beat everybody else for the whole week. And then I would be like, all right boss, I'm out, see ya. And he couldn't say anything to me and I'd leave work on Friday afternoon at one o'clock and it drove him bananas. But he knew that I only ate what I killed and so he didn't have any say over my time. And that experience of, of learning to fend for yourself in that particular environment, um, he brought me back in and he said, I want to pay you extra, but I want you to teach the rest of the crew how to do exactly what it is you do. And that was my first experience of exactly what you just stated, which was I said, okay, let me see if I can model this. And I utterly failed. Every single person I tried to teach these, uh, these skill sets to They almost instinctively revolted against it from a subconscious point of view. They kind of thought that there's no way that that works. There's no way that that that's how it should be. And so that came back to me to to realize that, you know what? Some people are wired for this. Some people aren't. And same thing with negotiations, right? Because when you're selling a gym membership, you're asking a person to invest a significant amount of their time and significant amount of their money into a business that you're going to profit from. And sometimes they don't even come back. They'll buy the membership for the, for the year and they don't really show up anymore. So it's sort of one of these things. It kind of goes hand in hand. You can't, you, there's a feel to it. There's really no way to model this and write it out. Because I tried six variations. Every single person I was teaching, um, I would say, okay, well, maybe that didn't work for this person. Maybe I don't understand it myself. So let me try to quote unquote remodel and rationalize it a different way. And I walked away from all of that realizing that, you know what, I don't know how I do it. I think it's mostly luck. And every person I've tried to teach it to, they've gotten slightly better, where I can say, yeah, you know what, they have a little bit more confidence in doing it, but could I say to them that if I was running a business, I would bank on that person to run it for me and we would be successful and profitable? I would say no. So it sort of fits into what you were just describing, uh, and I instinctively kind of understand it, but I still fail to really explain it to people in a way that would be sort of digestible to the average person. I
1: are think they, are they I can explain it. I, I think I can explain why you were successful, right? You, you know, and it's rather like when you when you you know, when you do start a business, um you actually you're actually supposed to have no money when you start a business because because that gives you the ability to learn. Um what what having what having the base salary what having too much capital in a business too is it is it insulates you from reality. It it, it insulates you from experience and it insulates you from learning. So by by you know the 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 two old cliches, constraint breeds creativity and necessity mm-hmm. is the mother of inven- invention, you know, your grandma knows. Uh and you put yourself in a position where you had to. Um, you mm-hmm. had no choice. You know, I've been a I've been out of situation. Um and and you find a way. When you put yourself in a position where you can't put food on a table, when you put your position where you can't pay the bills you'll either find a way or you won't right. um and so uh you'll you know you'll either be euthanized by evolution and you'll fail <laughs> and we'll, we won't be having this conversation or right. or you learn and and in those first three weeks you learned um you learned the to read the people and what you did is you accelerated the process because the thing that that, that that enabled you to learn how to sell to those people wasn't a model of how to sell gym memberships it was a model of dropping ace in the shit and see if he could swim yeah so the yeah. only the, the only way to teach it to people is to drop them in the same pond mm-hmm. um and uh or- orson Wells, you've accelerated uh something that that a lot of people are capable of doing okay but they they rarely do and orson Wells. I don't know if you've ever watched any of the interviews with Orson Wells on YouTube. If you have uh, an afternoon to fill or some if you're sick one day and you just want to spend the day in bed, just YouTube awesome Wells is one of the greatest interviewees of all time. But he he tells the story about the uh the night clerk in the hotel. Okay. So he comes on at midnight and you know, people arriving late, maybe a late flight or a a late bus into the city, they arrive, they want to check in after hours. Uh, and, and he 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 looks after those people and he can sell a standard room, a deluxe room or a suite, uh, you know, and and people come in the first year and, and, you know, between midnight and 6am and they, they book one of these rooms. And after a year or so, you know, he starts to be able to recognize what kind of room someone's going to book by the way they're dressed and the way they, You know, if they have some Louis Vuitton luggage, they're they're going in the suite. If the shoes are a little scuffed, they're taking the standard room. And he he gets reasonably good at this in year two. By year 10, he doesn't even need to look. Mm. And what you've done is accelerated the process of instinct by having to sell the gym memberships, not. Uh, being able to support yourself if you don't sell the gym memberships and that so it isn't really about the process of selling gym memberships it's about you it's about the salesperson
0: and it's it's
1: interesting as well um this this goes a little bit back to the negotiation point something I, i think we touched on previously uh when we've previously spoken but you know a lot of people talk about tells, you know, and uh, you know, poker, and, and and reading body language, and so on and so forth. And and uh, it, it, one of my I, I i theorize that you don't really need them. Um, mm-hmm. That you already know what people are thinking. All humans, we already know what people are thinking if you are in touch with your instincts. Right. Uh, if you can drop your assumptions. If you can turn off your filter, if you can ignore conventional wisdom and maybe even forget your education, yeah mm-hmm. if you can do all of those things, you actually don't need to see that someone's looking up to the left or whatever all this nonsense that has been written about this kind of stuff, you know and, and I, right. I suspect that you you got in touch with your instincts, and we as as humans get our in, in touch with our instincts, when we put ourselves into extreme circumstances.
0: Right, right. No, that that I'll, I'll I'll relay one quick story to that, and I'm going to tie in a bigger point that you, you and I are going to discuss about. Is this there was this um, other gym I worked at where I was a personal trainer, but I didn't sell memberships. Uh, the the manager of that uh, club, who was in charge of sales, he implicitly just was drawn to me. And what he used to do was whenever all his sales associates were busy, and I happened to be just standing around, you know, drinking a coffee or whatever, he would say, "Ace, hey, so there's a lead, I'll give it to you, and you can go and." give him a tour because I know you're closing for me. And so the story got interesting because one day this gentleman walked into the club and one of our sales reps, she was just uh, wearing her workout clothes and she wanted to go do her workout. And she kind of looked at him and she said, I'm not going to help that guy. And she said, I'm just going to go do my workout. I looked at him. I said, that's the first guy I want to help. And so she's like, well, have at it. Go go nuts. So I walked over to the guy and he looked completely disheveled. right? But I looked at him and and my approach to any kind of dealings that I've ever had with people is to... Give them the opportunity to um, fail in front of me, right? I don't want them to fail in the sense that I expect them to, but I don't want to give them a chance to, if, they, if, if that's what their inclination is. So he saw me, he shook my hand, he said, listen, I'm a truck driver. I don't have more than 15 minutes. I need uh, four memberships. How much is it? And I said, oh, you don't want a tour? He goes, nope, let's just do it right here, right now. So we pull out the contracts and she saw me getting the, his signature. She saw one, two, three, four papers and she could, she was completely livid. So the gentleman dropped all the money and he you know, swiped it with his credit card and he just went about his merry way. And he said, oh, um, uh, when, when I come back with the family, would you mind giving us the tour then?" I said, sure. So as he's leaving, she was just beside herself because that would have put her over her quota. And she called the manager over and said, oh, that sale was mine. I should have gotten that lead. And I said to her, I said, OK, but remember, you told me to take it because you looked at him and you judged him because he looked like somebody who didn't belong in this club. I walked over to him and I said, you know what, even if you look this way, the fact that you walked into this uh, gym tells me that you potentially want to be a member here. And maybe you don't want to be a member now, but maybe you'll be a member later. As long as I give you a good impression, who knows what may transpire. But She, as you said, she did not drop her assumptions. And as a consequence, she lost an opportunity to capitalize on a
1: sale within 15 minutes that most people wouldn't have gotten in four hours. The, um, the second rule of sales is never assume. Right, right. And, 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 and this ties back to something really interesting to
0: what you originally stated. And here's how we're going we're gonna to transition this conversation, which is you said that money hides your uh, uh, mistakes and shields you from reality. So we're going to touch on a subject that's near and dear to my heart, which is the And and I'm going to give you a theory and tell me if if it's completely wrong and then I want your take on it. And So here's my theory. My theory is a couple of guys uh, in the Silicon Valley um, invested in businesses that were profitable. When those businesses went public, they became billionaires off of it. Using that circle of billionaires, they decided to invest in all sorts of nonsense businesses that are currently spiraling out of control when it comes to valuations and the reason they keep making money is because they keep convincing other people that these businesses are valuable. And when these companies go public, they pull out their money. And if you just measure their point of view of, I started with X dollars, now I'm worth 10 billion. And then I took these other companies that you may not think are profitable or worth anything. But look, when they go public, I still make money. I'm still profitable. Therefore, my model is reinforcing and validating itself. Whereas you, me, and the rest of the crew look at this and be like, look, Uber is not profitable. We work or whatever that thing that just came out is not profitable. Where is the delusion and how is the cycle being perpetuated from your point of view? Because I've seen you talk about these businesses and these ridiculous uh, valuations and nobody really speaks out about it. And in fact, I think it was yesterday you were just critical of uh, one of the noise generating tweets about um, Y Combinator. So I'm really interested in your take from a person who's run um, not only businesses, but actually profitable businesses. As to
1: what your take is and what's going on with the madness of this Silicon Valley. Okay, so I'll start. I'll start sort of at the the sharp end of Silicon Valley, and 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 really, it's it's one of these ensemble individual agodicity problems that that there's a real misunderstanding. So, so if I'm Y combinator or uh, venture capitalist, um, you as the entrepreneur are, are the few I'm searching for flat for fat tailed returns and you as the entrepreneur of the, uh, are the fuel. So, you know, the, the, the stat yesterday was one in 1000, uh, you know, uh, successful Y combinator candidates are successful, you know, from the VC's perspective. Great. You know, but you as the entrepreneur, you've only got one life. If you're dead, right. you're dead. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. so, so everybody, uh, you know, I, I, I literally everybody who attends that conference uh or or that 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 um uh that wide Combinator event is uh you know is falling for the oldest trick in the book. Um, you know, it benefits the guy sat on the stage to have as many people there as possible because uh he pays no real price for your failure, but you pay the ultimate price for your failure. So <laughs> So, so, so starting at the bottom, the whole, you know, this idea that in some way VCs are, you know, good for, good for the individual entrepreneur that, you know, just read what their business model is. They're not hiding it. You know, they mm-hmm. burn through as many of you as possible. I mean, he, he said it, didn't he move fast and break things. That is the opposite way to which you should behave in business, but it is exactly the way that you should behave if you're uh, making, you know, hundreds of bets looking for an outsized return. So, you know, the, VCs aren't entrepreneur-friendly. VCs are VC-friendly. There's more bullshit been written about that, more bullshit spouted by the Andreessen Horowitzes of this world than you could ever imagine. You know, their business model is to burn you. Let's not get away from it. The chances of you being successful will be despite not because of. Um, and they are looking, they are looking to, to harvest the fat tail. Uh, and you, you are the fuel in the engine to generate that fat-tailed return, you are not, uh, and, and, and 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 this is why you get called a founder. You're not an owner. Uh, you're a founder because they, you're somebody who was there at the beginning, but you're not going to own very much at the end. Right. Uh, um, by the time it gets to the end, you're down to about eleven percent. Uh, if you're lucky. If you're lucky, and uh, you know, unless some extreme cases where. You know, the Facebooks of this world where you where you manage to to keep control. But a majority of cases you are you are the fuel in the VC machine and they are using you uh, and they don't hide it. Uh, it is there in their, all of their stats. You know, there's there's been loads of papers written. Power law returns, you know, just Google that power law returns in venture capital investments. And you will see there it is uh, nicely laid out and what your role in it as an entrepreneur is to die. You know, your role is to fail. Um, so so that's the first delusion. Uh, and I think the fundamental delusion at the bottom of it all, because everybody sees it the other way around, and it's these warm, cuddly VCs are somehow good for the, for the as an individual entrepreneur, you know, you, they're not good for you at all. You know, it's just survivorship bias. And we're, we are all prone to it. You know, we look at I mean, even the most successful successful ones didn't get that much venture capital. You know, Bill Gates didn't get that much venture capital. Um, but uh, so that's 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 that end of the of the equation, if you like, that end of the spectrum. Um, but then on the other side, so so the second half of the question is what what is happening? What's happening with WeWork? What is happening with these businesses that are that are valued? Um, you know, uh, on uh, no metric that we can you know we can define you know they're they're valued purely on narrative but I think I think that the the crux of the answer to the question is is in order for narrative to work you have to look at the context in which the narrative the story is being told so it so when it comes to the valuation of WeWork when it comes to the valuation of all of these loss-making businesses Uber I mean I include Amazon in this um when you when you look at this it is because uh, the the contextually the narrative is working and what is the context the context is um a period of monetary policy of easing of money printing quantitative whatever you want to call it um and uh zero interest rate policies or very low interest rates which has resulted in um the environment that we find ourselves in and it is an environment where uh people can uh you know raise debt far too cheaply and far too easily so the narrative that sells a, a business like uber or the narrative that sells a business like we work can only work in this context so you've got to look at both they're, they're obviously businesses that are valued on a story they're valued on a narrative, uh, and that narrative itself can only fly in a certain set set of circumstances, and those circumstances of, of you know, as a result of the crisis in two thousand and eight, the central banks have decided to, um, uh, you know, to to well. It, it, the irony, of course, is that they 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 wanted some inflation, and what they've all they've got is asset in, asset inflation. So, I think that would be that would be why they are valued as they are.
0: Fair enough. So, in in that particular regard, um, our friend David's question sort of uh, peeks through here, which is that, um, you know, nature creates uh, opportunities for anti-fragility to flourish. Human beings, by default of our uh, affinity for quote-unquote efficiency, all we do is create fragile systems. So, in this particular example, based on what you just said, the zero percent interest rates and all that, all it's doing is allowing more fragile things to come into existence. So um, this, this, this ties back to, to uh, what David wanted to know from you, which is that, um, you know, the most dangerous and least aware people that ever lived is basically how the current generation will be described. Um, do you think that's true? And if so, why is it true?
1: Oh, well, I think that, that because, because we, ha- we have the great greatest capacity for good or ill um, of, of any generation or of any... Of any people who've ever lived, you know, we are capable of destroying the entire planet. Um, you know, you, I think the climate change argument is a little bit of a, a little bit of misdirection. Um, but if you take a step back from that and look at what we actually are doing to the planet, we are certainly destroying it in its current state. Uh, you know, we've uh, we've polluted the oceans with plastic. We've um, you know, we've got mass extinction events uh, we are the reason we are the most dangerous is, is because the power that we have um mm-hmm. to build as you describe in these fragile systems so um and and at the same time at the same time as building these these fragile systems is we are we are we we've become um how would i describe what we are we, we've become mechanical you know mm-hmm. i think i think it's uh that rationality, you know, the mechanical following of logic, um, whereas reason combines this, you know, this following of logic with the fruits of experience. We just don't do that anymore. You know, our attention spans. We've forgotten. You know how we got here. We've forgotten how we got here as a species. Um, Rationality leads us to believe that our minds behave like computers. You know, it, it leads to a mechanized view of society. Um, it doesn't take into account emergent properties.
0: So, given what you just stated, which none of which I can disagree with, um, how do we encourage a shift back to what necessarily allows human beings to mimic nature by creating more anti-fragility around them? What would you recommend the steps people can take Uh, in their own business, um, if they're running one, or in their corporate sector. And we're going to touch on that because you and I were discussing the idea of false security within the corporate structure and then massive layoffs where uh, the minute they're about to be laid off, the manager who was managing you is so afraid of the consequences of their actions that they don't even step into that room. they just send an HR rep and say, hey, uh, we don't need your services as of today. Here's your package. See you later. So Tie all that back into what you just stated. How would you uh, advise people to operate in this world and in this environment,
1: knowing that a potential reset is on its way? Well, that's a that's a that's a very. I think in the macro, I I'm I would describe my position as optimistic in the micro and pessimistic in the macro. Mm. So I think from uh, from syst- from a systemic point of view, um, and I, I think I. I think I've said it before um the real the real battle at the moment isn't isn't sort of a political battle between left or right it's uh you know it's between command and control technocrats and adapt to survive emergence and the command and control technocrats are in charge um, and oh, no. they're, well they're warehousing risk uh, at a previously uh, un tested rate um and ultimately there has to be a blow up of some description but the thing is this 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 fragile system can go on for a long time it can go on it can certainly go on for our lifetimes um so but i i you know i'm sorry to be pessimistic on the macro level i i don't really see much that we as individuals can do i think that system has got away from us i think we've seen uh you know there was a uh, uh, and, 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 you know, the history of of humans isn't democratic.
0: Mm.
1: Um, democracy, I, I think democracy was was the key um, precursor to uh, economic development. Um, and I think we're we're witnessing a reduction, uh, a rapid decline in democracy. So the the attempt from an individual to try and make some difference to uh, a system that is that is becoming uh, increasingly fragile i think is is difficult to see how that that could happen now people are further further away from decision making process um you know the what the average person would want in the uk or in canada or the us is very very different to what the politicians do so i'm, I'm pretty pessimistic that, that there's much that, that any of us can do um but on an individual level you know we 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 are all capable of uh changing the way um that we understand the world right uh there are some things in the world that can only be understood via experience
0: really?
1: um and we seem to have forgotten that and the, the list you know, sex, <laughs> walk in the mountains. Yep, driving a car, lifting heavy weights for you guys. <laughs> yep, definitely. Flow, swimming, music, yeah. ritual, ceremonies, Peace. having Peace. children, working with other people. These are all the things that give life uh, meaning, um, and as individuals. Um, we already know this, you know, it's like I said before about tells and the fact that you already kind of know what other people are thinking, if you can let go. Um, but of course, what we're doing at the moment is is the opposite. You know, technology. Technology separates us um, from nature, it separates us from what makes us as human. It, it, it puts a literally puts a screen in the way um so so as a you know if if you know it's a little bit more even and I have a probably have a wider definition of entrepreneur than just somebody who who maybe you know would, would grow a business you know this this is uh you know so if we want to if we want to you know become more aware of our instincts we need there's, there's there's certain things we need to do. You know, we need to we need to get outside more. Um, but the thing is, you know, there's no such thing as eternal progress. Right. There's only volatility. Yeah. Cultures wax and wane. Um, the 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 thought that there's such a thing as eternal progress f- flies in the face of history and experience. Um, so, it is inevitable that this society will come to some sort of end. Um, and, uh, you know, are we getting any happier, wiser? Are we living in harmony with the planet? No, none of that I could see. So, I mean, I'd argue that we need saving from ourselves. I would agree that. Uh, is it John Gray who said humans gain knowledge at accelerating rate without ever learning from experience? Yep. I think, I think they, the point of that was the, um, the idea of harnessing, quote-unquote, the, uh,
0: the power of the nuclear weapons while not recognizing the consequence of what that may entail, right? Sort of what you just said earlier about the power of being able to blow up the Earth. Um, so in this particular regard, a couple of things come to mind and um, with regards to the people around me and, and, and how I interact with them. And, and I try to tell them about these, the simple concept that I've sort of come to understand and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, obviously please. Um, it is the notion of local currency and global currency. And what I mean by that is there are people who work inside corporations and they become experts within a very small pocket of whatever that organization happens to be doing And that's a local currency they accumulate, but the minute they let go of that from that company, they're essentially useless outside of that company. Whatever they put on their CV to get that next job is almost entirely useless. Whereas a global currency is sort of the type type of stuff that you're talking about here, the type of stuff that Nassim talks about in Encerto and all the the crew talks about in terms of emerging properties, which is that, you know, acquire skills that are transferable in the face of uncertainty. And so this goes to David's point, which is that... um, Uh, When you have founders like you stated, they look into the unknown and and bring value back from that. Whereas when you put the business people in charge, they look internally and they try to uh, maximize the KPIs that are already been established. Therefore, they're not harvesting new um, uh, potential fields. they're just milking the same cow that's already been in existence. So given those two factors, the notion of embracing
1: uncertainty is the only thing I could see as a way out from this. Would you agree or disagree with that? And if so, I, 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 I agree with it completely. And the, and the way that you embrace uncertainty is by, is through redundancy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. interesting. If you look at, at it from a corporate and entrepreneurial perspective and think about, think about the way uh, an MBA type person would, would fund a run a business and think of it the way an entrepreneur would run a business, and and this is this is something people can practically think about in terms of redundancy. Interestingly, as a as an investor, um, redundancy reduces the return in your investment model. Yeah, on, yeah. on a or, or, or if you look back at uh, you know, and, and debt increases it. So redundancy reduces the return in your investment model. As a, an MBA guy coming to invest in a business, and debt increases it. This is the way you look at it. Now, take a step back from that. Does anyone really believe that debt causes businesses to be successful? It's insane. Uh, You know, debt. How can you know? It's wet pavements cause rain. Um, But this is (laughs) this is this is the this is the returns model. Now, now look at it the other way around. Mm -hmm. Redundancy increases your chance of survival in uncertain times. Exactly right. The second kidney is necessary debt is a hand grenade bouncing down the stairs of your life. <laughs> That's a very so, colourful way to look at it. Although debt-funded deals return a higher rate than non-debt-funded mm. deals individually, across the economy as a whole, returns, returns are ultimately lower. And uh, to, to sort of look at this from a sort of more practical sense, uh, an example I quite often give is, is imagine that, that we are entrepreneurs and we own a, a chain of say a hundred pizza restaurants mm-hmm. um, we own the freeholds um, we make profit we've got cash in the bank with no debt uh, we've got a nice business um, anyway you wake up one morning and say do you know what I don't want to do this anymore I want out mm-hmm. so we bring in private equity so what did private equity do to that business they sell and lease back the freeholds. What does the MBA, what does that uh, Harvard MBA tell you to do is to maximize your, uh, maximize your debt capacity to roll out as many pizza restaurants as possible. Um, So suddenly now we don't own our restaurants anymore. We are then debted to the bank. Uh, We have a private equity loan note in the business. You've, gone off and put several million dollars in your pocket and you're happy. And then the fashion does, is essentially restaurants are a fashion business. Eating's fashion's change. No one wants to eat pizza anymore. And everybody wants uh, a vegan burger restaurants. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. So you and I originally, when we owned our freeholds, had cash in the bank and no debt, would have cycled our restaurant chain through from pizza places to vegan burger places. We would have taken some pain. We would have lost some money. Um, We may have closed the odd store, but we'd have got through it. We had redundancy. What happens to the private equity guy, the MBA guy? Do you know what? The business goes bust. And do you know what he says? Nobody could have seen it coming. Coming, right, 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 right. Nobody could have predicted it. And the whole point (laughs) of all of this is, what the entrepreneur says, yes, I, I agree. I couldn't have predicted vegan burgers, but what I can do is predict shit. Whatever you, <laughs> shit is coming. I do not know exactly what it looks like, but it is coming. And that, that I think, goes to the heart of the, the difference between the two types of people, if you like. So I guess that's it. How, how, do, we, how do we benefit? How, how do we learn? in our own lives is, is, to add that, is to add that level of redundancy. You, you're not trying to predict the shit that's coming down the tube, but you know it's coming. And you can reverse it around the other way as well. You can't predict the good stuff, the happy accidents that are coming, but you know they're coming too. So you have to give yourself opportunity both ways. Of course, of course, that's, that's actually funny because as you mentioned that, I noticed three things popped into my head actually. One,
0: I recall there was a time when there was a massive expansion of Starbucks. And I think the people who were guiding that procedure were all the the MBA types. And they were basically overstretched to the point where there was a Starbucks across from a Starbucks, which the idea was that if we own the market and corner literally every angle of it, we will be better off. And of course, that just caused a bunch of stores down.
1: Well, everything's a Laffler curve.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. That's exactly it. And that's what what makes it funny, because the second company that followed that same principle actually went completely out of business, which was, there's a company, I'm not sure they have it in the UK, but in Canada, it's called Quiznos Subs, and and the way they distinguished themselves from all the other sub places was that they gave you these really nice toasted sandwiches as opposed to the regular ones, and they did exactly what you described, which is that they went into massive debt to ever expand a business without taking into consideration, which is uh, Nassim's idea, which from the internal volume, when he was talking about when they were telling him, I know. how do you know which co- uh, what company is going to do well? And he said, I don't know, but I can tell you which ones are not going to do well, the ones that are burdened in debt. And they and I think the gentleman um, uh, forgot to ask the follow-up question, but Nassim gave the answer to it anyway, which is that why do you think debt-burdened businesses are not going to do well? And his answer maps perfectly to what you just stated, which was that uh, take, incurring debt is a form of arrogance in the sense that you, th- you can predict the future well enough that you can not only pay back that debt but make money off of that debt. Therefore, you put yourself uh, twice at risk because now you're going to have accelerating harm come your way should the vegan uh, sandwich idea take off and your pizza store now been uh, fully stretched beyond its normal capacity. uh, It's going to crumble.
1: Yeah, he should have said debt is a hand grenade bouncing down the stairs if you like.
0: (laughs) That would have been much more memorable for sure. But it, It sort of ties exactly into it because um, what this, this what, what I like about all this stuff is that um, uh, you know it, it goes back to the other concept of of the, the the high IQ individual sitting across the table from someone like you, in a negotiation, right? So so in that particular instance, I can only see you um, to quote Joe's favorite term, pantsing them because um, you stated uh, that there's nothing more you look forward to than to sit, sit across the table from a high IQ individual when it comes to time to negotiation. So what exactly? tips you off knowing that the person is a high q a high iq quote unquote and b that they actually believe that that's actually true and how do you take advantage of that kind of person
1: well actually at the time i had the high in in inverted commas and there was there was a little bit of um provocation in that in that tweet i think as well just uh but 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 what i what i actually mean is and seems touched on this and i've i've really enjoyed his destruction of the, uh, the IQ industry. It's something I've talked about for a, a long time. Um, but, uh, what, I, what I really mean is, is this, is, is the people that get into the circular, the circular professions. So the press professions that you progress in because you have a high IQ. Um, mm-hmm. so, so, you know, there are plenty of people with high IQs who will be formidable, um, uh but it you know dis- despite I don't I think I, I, I- IQ is only predictive of two things I think the got it slightly wrong actually absolutely got it right on, it, you know where there's a, a disability but I think he missed the the gullibility end uh that IQ predicts or 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 or, or. C- certainly so there's certain there's certain professions where you know the the progress through the profession I- invariably or 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 in many in many cases can be uh you know via similar tests to that of the i q test mm. so you know law accountancy consultancy you know they're closed systems so you, you know you can you can progress uh you can progress in a, in, in, a, in, a closed, in a closed system because you're not exposed to, uh, you know, the, the hand grenade of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you really you really want to be negotiating with those people because they've never learned. I guess that's the irony. The only way you learn in life is failure. Right. So if you think about the progress to being a partner at PwC, yeah, you pass all your exams at school. A good grades yeah you go to university you, you 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 get your accountancy qualification your economics qualification you get your uh you know training contract in PWC you pass your professional exams every box ticked all nice all straightforward all predictable controllable yeah there's no pigeon jumping on your chessboard <laughs> Um, but you've not learned a single thing. What what, what, in fact, what you what you have learned is that the future is predictable mm. because you've operated in a closed system. The only way uh, the future can be predictable is within a closed system, and that's your only experience. So, if if you if all you know is the ratio of one thing to another, then you're going to be destroyed by an open system you're going to be destroyed by the infinite possibility of an open system
0: and that's why that's
1: why you want those people on the other side because it's the hubris that you're looking for i i could have said hubris right. i want the, some of this side of the table to have an incredible amount of hubris but given what was going on in the iq debate i thought it'd be much more fun to say hi iq <laughs> 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 the, the, we know the the hu- hubris you know the the thought that we can understand and control everything. You know, that's, 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 what, that's where the high IQ hubristic professional sat in his ivory tower. That's, that's where he is. Uh, right, right, right. And we can't. And this is what go all the way back to what I said, that, that um, negotiation is a dynamic, nonlinear, emergent process. Mm-hmm. You want the other per- person on the other side to think, think linearly. You right. want them to think that you pass an exam, therefore you get a job. Right, 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 there's, right. There's no exam out here.
0: No, I remember we, we, you, you and I were discussing this, and, and, and it sort of harks back to this point. When, when, I, when I see these type of arguments, I always think to myself in the following way. No matter how intelligent I may be, my finite brain cannot encompass the infinite universe. Therefore, as a starting point, for me to assume to have control over external factors is to only deceive myself, and therefore to put myself out of disadvantage. If I was sitting across somebody like you and we were negotiating, because clearly, um, if I thought I was smarter than you, or if I thought I was smarter than the whole process, all I'm doing here is being my own worst enemy. You know what I mean? And and that kind of ties back into what you just stated, which is the level of hubris. If you believe in your own high IQ and you believe that IQ is real, and then you continue to operate under those assumptions, you will set yourself up for that asymmetrical opportunity that may come your way. And you will get, uh, you either hit ruin, um, which will, you know, take you out of the game. Or you, will may, you may get humbled by, by, by a potentially significant loss, not one that
1: totally destroys you, but one that kind of helps you kind of temper down your expectations of what you think you know versus what's possible to know. Well, what you've done is you've, you've, you've subjugated your instinct. And, and I guess one of the important messages that I would like to, to get across in this podcast is, is we evolved, humans evolved instinct and humility to deal with an uncertain world. Right. Um, um, What we are What the formal Education What the formal uh, Methodology into these Types of jobs is Is via The application of models Mm. Um, Now maths can't help you when Outcomes are incalculable Right, 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 right Um, So These guys they become a hostage, what's, what's what I'd say, a hostage to certainty. Right, right, right. And, and, and I want to follow up on that on the following patterns.
0: Right. So this is going to get really interesting for you really quickly because we'll look at two characters. On the one side, you have the ex-KGB uh, colonel who became president of Russia. Uh, clearly, the path from his starting career uh, to where he is now was rife with uncertainty and I'm sure various activities the likes of which we wouldn't want to participate in. And on the other side, you have, you know, Donald Trump, who everybody, and I always tell people, I'm like, you know, the worst thing you could do is assume the man is stupid, because clearly he isn't. But if you're sitting across a negotiation table with Trump on one side and Putin on the other, um, what do you see when that situation transpires? What, what kind of a, a dynamic do you uh, foresee when those two sit across from each other? Because clearly, both of them aren't the type of people who've checked off any kind of boxes on anybody's list of constrained uh, formal
1: systems. They, they appear to be both non-linear in terms of how they got to where they are. How do you see it? Well, I mean, I, it's interesting when you think, of it, just take Trump, for example. I don't think Trump's particularly great, but the the, the the pond that he swam in when he entered politics was just full of people who were truly incapable. Um, right. So, so So I think, I don't think he, you know, I I suspect he isn't, he wasn't a billionaire. He may well be now. I suspect that much, much of what he he was was myth. Um, But, but I agree with you. He's definitely nonlinear. He's definitely unpredictable. He's much more capable than his democratic opponents um, will ever be. Um so he will continue to win in my opinion, uh until until I, I don't think that the political system in the US is capable of producing somebody on the democ- democratic side to uh, you know, with the with the the kind of attributes to oppose him. Um or who can who can win in in the game that he's playing. Um so I think I think right, you know, whether you love him or hate him, we're probably gonna be stuck with him for another five years. But um uh so so I don't think he's particularly um amazing. Um but I I think I said it before, you know, he he he's the president of the most, by far and away the most powerful country on earth. And uh wh- the dynamic that, that I would see uh mm. between Putin and Trump is Putin knows that. Mm. So he he he's playing and and I think you know everybody who deals with Trump at the moment is, is playing a game of lose as little as possible. They're no, not playing no. the game to win, they're playing a the game to minimize losses. Um no. and to you know to, to 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 get small wins where they can. Um and I think that will that will be the the pattern that emerges. I'm absolutely convinced that. A trade deal will be uh reached with China. I think there's some benefit now for Trump in the lead up um to to sort of postulate that China's waiting for a Democrat so they can have an easier negotiation. So I can see why why he's uh why he's kind of playing around with it at the moment. But I, I think I think ultimately he will he will get what he wants. Um because he holds all the cards and America holds all the cards, certain, certainly at the moment. So uh I think I think the dynamic isn't isn't as complicated. I think people probably over over complicate the dynamic. You know, Trump Z, Trump Putin. You know, he's got the cards. He should win. Um, right. It's just a case of uh, of how. You know, how does he get there? What does it look like when he gets there? And like I always say, you can't predict it. Vic- victory is emergent. Success is emergent in in negotiations. It never looks like you thought it was going to look. Um, so, it's very difficult to say, but I, I would suspect that the dynamic in all cases is, is loss minimization on behalf of everybody who's not America.
0: Fair enough. So, I, wanna, I have a bone to contend with you on one area where I think we actually found some level of disagreement, and, and it was a minor level of disagreement, but it was actually uh, noticeable because you, you and I are usually on the same page, which was that sometimes you could tell that a business deal is going to be a bad deal before it even starts. And uh, I get your point, which was to say that you don't know until you get started. But my point, uh, counter to that, was that we know when the person who's been given the opportunity to run that business has been handed the keys to the kingdom, funded by their rich parents. Um, so that's one instance of it. And, and the reason I want to bring that up is because it's going to tie into exactly where you live with regards to Brexit and the EU. Because my professor, one of the only guys I actually remember in school who I still to this day respect and I sometimes reach out to and stay in touch with, his PhD thesis was that how bad the idea of the euro was. And they almost didn't give him his PhD because clearly they wanted the uh, opposite narrative to be true. And he stated that regardless of what you see as efficiencies gained, what you're discounting is the cultural differences that will fight the norms that are going to be pushed from one location of Europe across the rest of Europe. And that was his sticking point. He said, look, all your models aside... Some people just operate differently. And as soon as you start to dictate to them, they will revolt against it. And so, considering where you live, how do you see all this unfurling? And, and what was your uh, first inclination when you heard about the concept of the EU? And, and, and that is one of those instances where you can almost see that it's a bad deal, that it's going to fail. You just don't know how bad and how long it'll take for it to fail.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think, well, I don't think we disagree particularly. Uh, I think my. my, my I was probably being picky on whether we know, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm deeply suspicious of whether, whether, whether we know anything An outcome, there's always surprises, you know, Mm. um, no, no matter, no matter how, uh, how clever, uh, we think we are, we all, we all get surprised, but, uh, no, I mean, it, it, you know, the European union is, you know, the Euro is flawed, you know, you can't have, um, currency union without fiscal union you can't have fiscal union without p- political union and um it doesn't it doesn't appear that there is the appetite for um political union if i was the european union i i would want the uk out um because because we are an, an impediment um to fiscal union certainly and, and political union definitely so you know, whether whether or not there's an appetite in this country to stay or, or leave the EU is one thing. But whether there's a, a majority in this country for to be in a federal uh, Europe, I would say that 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 uh, absolutely definitely there isn't. So ultimately, you know, they they you would think they would want us out. And I think the only reason they don't want us out is because of the economic predicament they're now in where they uh, you know, the potential of losing. One member is one thing, but then the precedent that sets for people like Italy and so on and so forth is another. So, so I think, I think they, they have painted themselves, every, everybody's painted into a, into a corner now. Uh, I think I said earlier, you know, wh- wh- what history uh, and experience tells us about, um, you, know, or, you know, every attempt to have uh, something um, similar to the European Union in history has blown up. And uh, I'm reasonably confident that this one will blow up too. I, you know, my instinct uh, is many people on, you know, in our corner of the Twitter world is to de- is decentralisation um, is is best. Um, I've already talked about the the democratic problems that we we face today and the the effect they're going to have on economic development, and I, and I certainly think that's the case it, in Europe. I'm not completely convinced that we. Well, we chose the wrong time, and then we chose the wrong people. So it's very difficult at the moment. I, I think I annoy a lot of people by being re- reasonably ambivalent on Brexit. Look, I think Europe will break up. I think the UK should, um, uh, you know, absolutely uh, leave if it if it if it can't join the party. I think we chose a bad time and we chose the wrong people. So we've ended up in a in a very very difficult. Um, a very difficult situation.
0: So answer this for me, because I've always found this curious, right? So I, I listen to both sides of the people who are anti and pro-Brexit and all that stuff. And I always say, you know, why, what you could do is you could actually revert back to what used to be the way uh, each country operated, but keep some of the good stuff that did come out of the whole European Union concept, like some of this, the ideas that were beneficial, you could still retain them and say, look, yeah, we tried this experiment. It, didn't work out the way we thought it should. But what we could do is we could just do a new iteration where we can go back to what we know always did work, but we could incorporate some of the valuable lessons we learned. Why does it have to be a binary one or zero? Why can't it just be like a, an emergent uh, solution to state that, hey, some of these ideas were poorly thought out. Some of these actually were surprisingly good. Incorporate those back and let's revert back to the last state of the system, which we knew was semi-functional relative to what's happening today. Why isn't that conversation ever being had? Why has it always been a one or zero? Or is that just the media and the way they want to portray all this? Are people in in your part of the world, are they actually having a nuanced point of view in this nuanced conversation to say, what can we salvage that may be good while we revert back to what we know used to work?
1: Uh, People in power never give the keys back.
0: (laughs) Yes, so the first rule of government is to, is, to, is to grow its size, right, to maintain its uh, legitimacy so that it can continue to operate. But
1: what about the, the people the, on the ground? The, the neoliberal project is never going to wake up one morning, look around and say, do you know what? We tried the interventionism thing. That didn't really work out. The monetary policy, well, that seems to have stored up an incredible amount of risk um you know the the european union project yeah we've we seem to have uh you know 50 percent youth unemployment or in our in our southern states we've got all kinds of people voting to leave you know they're not going to wake up one morning do you know what maybe this this liberal project hasn't worked no what you're going to get is just more liberalism there's no chance of them picking the good bits out their answer to the failure of their project is you need more of it. You need more Europe. You need more easing. You need more uh, intervention. You just need, we just haven't done enough of it. Um, And the people who are uh, leading uh, the, the the neoliberal project or the people who, who who are running this game, they don't think that it's not working. They just think we're on, on the, the, you know the curve we're on the line to this um halcyon world that they're that, that somehow i mean the last vanity of man you know that in some way we can change who we are and what we are uh and they think we're just not we're not there yet so uh there is no chance that these people will give the keys back and say does somebody else want to go
0: No, It sounds to me like the whole old argument of uh, true communism has never been tried, true socialism has never been tried, true European Union unified solution and kumbaya has never been tried. It seems like that same mental block that prevents reality from sinking into some people's uh, frame of reference has permeated this conversation as well, from what you're telling me. Because I have friends in in Europe and, and, and invariably this is an issue that's almost always divisive. Even if I try to bring it up with nuance, I'm painted in one particular camp or another, regardless of what I say. So you're closer to it. Um, what's your what's your feel like at the ground level? What are people really like, you know, Boris Johnson supposedly going to uh, fulfill the promises that have been made and yet never kept? Um, what's, what's your take on all that at, that at that end of it? Like, is there a true concern that this was a bad idea, that they may want to try to do another vote and stay
1: in, or is it like this is a done deal? We're just waiting for the, um, the clock to tick down on it. The establishment doesn't want to leave. Right. Um, you know, that's clear. The press, you know, we had uh, Obama stump up and tell us not to leave. Uh, you know, the establishment doesn't want to leave. So I have deep, I, I have predicted all along that we will never leave. I stand by my prediction. Um, I don't trust Johnson as far as I could throw him. He he is of of the establishment. He is Eton. He is Oxford. He is he is from the same world as the people who got us into this position in the first place. I don't I don't think for a minute he's not. Um, and I suspect they're softening us up now for a watered down slightly ever so slightly watered down withdrawal agreement which is is leaving in name only and basically um leaves you know the country subject to um the european union in many many ways for for a long time coming or uh, we get another extension and and and, and they will uh, bide their time for a, for a second uh, a second vote so so i suspect that that ultimately we won't leave there is no nuance or subtlety in any of the arguments on either side uh, or 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 you know particularly on the- the remain side who whose attempts to um you know to paint the Leavers as uh somehow racist is has been one of the you know most disappointing features, but also on the on the Leave side you know they they came up with some numbers and some nonsense that 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 you know didn't really hold much water which they you know they didn't really need i don't think. Um, So, so there's no nuance on either side. We are completely polarized. Um, I, you know, I'm instinctively, definitely I instinctively a lever, a lever, but not in these circumstances, not not in these people doing the negotiation, they're going to leave us in a worse position than we were before. So even those of us who who want to listen to both sides are are paralyzed by, uh, you know, Mrs. May was a, a remainer. Um, you know, we had and we had somebody who who literally understood zero of what we talked about today in terms of negotiation. Um, <laughs> so we we were never gonna get anywhere with uh what I I think, you know, just as an aside, one of the funniest side effects of the sort of the debate for me mm-hmm. has been the remain argument uh that this is the best deal we could have got. Um And uh, it is made consistently by actors and comedians. So I decided to do a little research into these guys and see how many of them have an agent. They all have an agent, which is interesting. So when they're negotiating their book, film and television deals, they don't think it's the best deal they could have got. (laughs) They feel the need to bring in a professional negotiator to go and get them a better deal. But when it comes to leaving the European Union, apparently we don't need a professional negotiator. We just need somebody who used to work in the settlements office of the Bank of England who's got a geography degree. <laughs> no,
0: but you know what's funny about that? And and I, and I pardon me for laughing in, in, in the in 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 right of manner. is the The never Chamberlain solution to the problem has never been really considered, right? I mean, if there is ever an example of a person who should not have ever negotiated any deals, it's never Chamberlain. And, and and that lesson should have been the core lesson taught to all school children since that war, which is like, look, this is how you clearly not do this. But it seems like that school of thought never really took off. And so we well, We live in
1: the sign we live in the Seinfeld world. You know, there is no learning. There is no learning.
0: <laughs> that's uh it's a little disappointing, but you know what? Uh, there's always hope for at least uh, the reason I started this podcast, and, and it's very simple. It's like there are pockets where nuance matters. There are pockets where um, recognition of the fatality of certainty matters, right? So we wanted to get these voices out, and, and, and your uh, voice is definitely one of the uh, more sought-after ones. And, and the reason I want to bring that up and to, to tie it back into your previous point is that You mentioned Boris Johnson's uh, experience at at Oxford, but you and I have also had a conversation where you had your education. um, uh, How did you put it? Uh, The only white kid in town and you had to learn real fast. So, Can you uh, elaborate on on your experience and expertise from that time period of your of your um,
1: of your schooling? Well, I think it relates back to how you were able to sell so many gym memberships. You know, Uh, I, you know, I went, I went, my father worked in Nigeria and I I was the only white kid in in the school. Uh, And you learn very quickly to read the expressions of the other kids. You know, when you're, when you're new and you stand out, right. right? Then, you you know, and and you're smaller than everyone else. I was, I'm I'm a big guy now, but uh, at the age of 13, I was a skinny white kid. And uh, my, my, my friends over there were, were a lot bigger than me um and uh you learn very quickly to read um your fellow classmates you know mm-hmm. uh and i think you know you know we obviously we've spoken before before you you move countries also And yeah. uh, when you're the new kid you learn very quickly to read your new new um classmates and uh you know that's what you were doing when you sold the gym memberships you were employing that that embodied skill, that embodied skill that you would, that you would learn via the experience you had when you were much younger. Uh, And yeah, no, I, uh, I had quite a scary time. Um, Not too many, uh, not too many white kids playing soccer in, in the, uh, yeah, African bush in the 1980s. Well, you know, what's
0: interesting on that front is that, I learned, and you know, we talked about reading people, but there's another layer to this that I learned instinctively, which was not only that I learned to read people because you know I obviously get bullied, but I learned to read people in a different situation I was in. So if I was in a, one of the hallways where the, the teachers didn't really roam that much and, and, and I was walking through there and I knew the certain kind of characters that would uh, gain pleasure out of tormenting me, I knew exactly when and where to avoid those areas. So it's not only knowing the people you're going to deal with, it's also knowing that there's potential opportunities where they will maximize their uh, advantage over you in those particular opportunities. So I've learned how to navigate not only the people, but also the environment at the same time, because if you pay attention to one and not the other, you will find yourself in a situation that may not necessarily be tenable to you and your ability to
1: avoid ruin, right? Absolutely, yeah. You mean you learn to rely on your instincts? Yeah,
0: yeah. So, your instincts
1: enable uh, you to deal with an uncertain future. So this is how... This is how you become skilled.
0: Yeah. So I, I appreciate your time. I know you wanted to set aside uh, just uh, about two hours, but I do have a couple of quick questions from our, our, our fans. If you want to just quickly fire off some um, uh, quick responses to those, if you have time, or
1: yeah, no, um, sure. I'm, I'm uh, I've got a little bit longer. I'm just about to drive off to pick my youngest daughter up from uh, a festival. So, but I've got a few a few minutes okay. here. Okay,
0: perfect. So, a question is this: um, How long does an average negotiation last for you? What are the time bounds that you put on yourself in space and time when it comes to how you prep? So, people want to emulate the the teachings that you've been uh, telling us about. What's your process like? How do you? What do you do?
1: I don't have one. Don't have a process would be my answer to that. Avoid all processes.
0: (laughs) Okay, perfect. Um, What was the biggest mistake you ever made negotiating, and what lesson did you learn from it?
1: Oh, um, that's a difficult question. Mistake negotiating, mistake negotiating. I think um, early on in business, um, mm-hmm. the, the mistake that I made most regularly was leaving money on the table um, mm-hmm. because I had that constraint you know we didn't have any money we didn't have any uh any capital in the business uh it, you know it was just throw throw the money in throw the throw the deals through the door um mm-hmm. uh and and that was it, that was a learning process that was a learning process to realize that uh actually if you slow down a bit um and uh you know take your time there is, there is probably there is probably a better deal to be had by um, my, my biggest mistake in negotiation would have been going too fast.
0: Too Okay. Okay. Uh, the next couple of questions are going to be quick ones, but, um, uh, here's the one, uh, <clears throat> how do we humanize the entrepreneurial process so that we can actually help people who take risks without basically bringing their life to a ruined point? Because uh, if you are going to embrace uncertainty and risk, the odds of you hitting ruin are going to be a lot higher than somebody who doesn't. So in your opinion, how do you humanize that process so we can encourage more of it and try to protect them on their downside?
1: You can't. You're supposed to have the threat of ruin. That's what makes you better.
0: So get on the, uh, the high wire without the safety net is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And the last question from David is, um, at a time when everybody's trying to be right, um, how do we go about... Uh, seeing the information for what it is versus uh, reinforcing what we believe it
1: to be. Seeing the information for what it really is. Um, so so it's,
0: like, it's like, how do you recognize you're in the Kobe Maru, so to speak? It's, it's I guess, the, the, the bottom uh, end of that question. Like, how do you know when you're in the Kobe Maru? How do you know when those boundaries that you spoke of are, are things, to, sometimes boundaries are good, sometimes they're not. How do you know when you should step outside of it versus stay inside of it?
1: you personally experience experience and instinct um uh, and the thing that i've started to think about a lot recently um is is how to get more in touch with your instincts how to get more in touch with in- intuition how to get more in touch with that part of you that that understands the whole rather than understands the bits which is essentially what this question is isn't it, it is is, it is how how do you understand the whole um how do you take a step back um and and i think we're we are in a world that has been designed by um you know the left hemisphere that 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 the the left hemisphere looks at the world as if it's made up of bits put together you know and what what the question is really asking is how how do we how do we look at the world as a as a whole? You know, left hemisphere narrows down to certainty, um, and I think the answer to much of this is context. So it's to trying to see everything in its context rather than 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 in it, it it broken down into its individual pieces. So how how do you go about doing that? So the one, it's easy to say it, isn't it? It's right. easy to say you know don't have a bureaucratic mind, you know uh don't don't follow pre- explicit procedures um don't look for predictability organizability you know try to be individual try to be unique try to be embodied flexible um and then i guess that is the basis for understanding isn't it but that, that it's one thing to say it and uh, the next thing is is how how do you do it how do how do you how do you make yourself um you know more right hemispheric for what a better what a better way of putting it um i and i i i mean i i took a, a month off twitter I, I took a month off all screens really apart from work um emails and messages and stuff and you feel all of those things coming back the ability to see things as a whole um you feel it all all coming back to you whereas you know we are surrounded Um, you know, we are immersed into technology, which removes us from the business of embodied existence. So I would have said, how, how do you, how do you do that? I think you have to remove yourself as much as you can, um, from the technology, from the screens, from the, uh, from, from the constant interruptions, um, and from having a screen between you and reality.
0: Fair enough. So, it's, uh, on this point, I guess um, as an insider joke between you and me is, uh, you don't want to be stuck in the room taking notes, right?
1: <laughs> so I missed that
0: one. I said, you don't want to be in the room uh, stuck taking notes. No. And then passing the notes around to all the people, as opposed to just enjoying
1: the atmosphere of what's being stated in the room. Uh, verbally and nonverbally. If you successfully, you get someone else to take the notes for you. <laughs> Uh, Thank
0: you very, very much for your time. Uh, Do you have anything, any last parting thoughts that we didn't get to cover for you?
1: Oh, no, it's been a, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. You, um, you're, you're an excellent, uh, very knowledgeable, widely uh, read uh, interviewer. I just hope the interviewee uh, was able to live up to the interviewer. Oh, but but you exceeded all
0: expectations, and you did live up to Convex Man as the nickname that you have uh, been uh, ascribed to by I the
1: group. i take that one. I might have a t-shirt. <laughs> you should. You definitely should. All right, Mike. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ace. It was wonderful. Thank you. Bye bye. Welcome. Bye bye.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we have. The truth is, any worthy conversation we'll ever have will inherently be a risky conversation. As long as it's open and honest where ideas are exchanged and emotions swirl. Thank you for listening. Be anti-fragile and carry on the ancient tradition in your own unique way. By saying what only you can say and doing what only you can do. Abiding by Milton's words, this is Emmer Sadat signing off. Wishing you the very best of worthy and risky conversations.